Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise by your power. We will go by your spirit. We are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Liberty and Bell. Liberty and Bell. Those are the names of the two turkeys. From the presidential flock at the Ginio Farm in Minnesota who were pardoned yesterday and will not um, be fated for a Thanksgiving table. My name is uh, Carmen LaBerge. This is Mornings with Carmen. You're listening to the Faith Radio Network. Uh, Yeah, Liberty and Bell. So much like the shepherds in Bethlehem raised sheep, especially for the sacrificial system uh, at the temple in the days of Jesus, These turkeys, Liberty and Bell, were never actually headed for anyone's Thanksgiving table. These these birds were bred and raised as a part of the presidential flock at the Jenny O. Farm in Minnesota. And if you have not yet seen pictures of them, you know what? It is worth a look. Uh, Specially bred, fed, groomed, gentled, Liberty and Bell, weighing in at 42 pounds each, were trained in their short four-month lives. I mean, so far, they're going to live, they're now going to live like long turkey lives. Anyway, they were trained to behave themselves. They were trained to actually like ruffle their feathers, like preen like peacocks almost for the adoring crowds. So Liberty and Bell were formally pardoned yesterday. They received a presidential pardon. Now, to be fair, the birds are not truly free. They may have been spared the equivalent of capital punishment, but they're going to still live in confinement for the rest of their lives. It's not like they're going to be set free to live as wild birds live. They're not, they're not going to show up uh, on the peninsula where I live with a flock of wild, um, wild birds roaming around. No, no. And if they did, they would stand out massively. First of all, wild birds are dark of feather, and these birds are almost white. Again, it's, it's worth a look. Their death sentence was essentially commuted. And they will live a life of relative turkey freedom on a turkey farm. So uh, that is different than the pardon you have received, my friend. That is different than the pardon you have received. Those who have been pardoned for sin by God, those who have been forgiven in Christ Jesus are free indeed. The forgiveness we receive from God is not only a commutation of a death sentence for the wages of sin are death. Far more, the forgiveness God extends in Jesus Christ sets the believer free. Indeed, the slate is wiped clean. It is as if it never happened. Now, our minds don't work like that. We hold other people's sins against them, don't we? We have long memories of the sins others have committed against us. But God does not. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Period. End of sentence. Free indeed. The Apostle Paul says in today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day that it is for freedom that we have been set free. It is for freedom we have been set free in Christ. So how are you and I using the freedom we have in Jesus Christ? Galatians 5, 
13 to 15. Where in the word are you today? Uh, I am in Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve others in love. For the whole law can be summed up in just one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. What does that mean? And how does it encourage us to live today? You are not a turkey, pardoned by the President of the United States in a silly show of authority. You are a child of God, forgiven of your sins by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christ, who did not resist the cross because he could see you, he could see you in need of its redemptive power. So may each of us and all of us use the freedom we have in Christ today to the glory of God. May we use the freedom we have in Christ today for the advancement of his kingdom. May we use the freedom we have in Christ today to love those who are still under the full penalty of sin. Indeed, may we use our freedom in Christ to see others freed. Not to a turkey-like clemency of life imprisonment, but to the fullness of a life free in Christ, free indeed. All right, my friends, have you still got uh, grocery shopping yet to do for Thanksgiving? <clears throat> it is. Um, it is Tuesday. Feels like the uh, <laughs> feels feels like the Thanksgiving clock is ticking. Like I think Tuesday is the day that. If you have a frozen turkey, you need to put that thing like in a cooler and let it start thawing out. Uh, I uh, I am just going to confess that <clears throat> after preparing yesterday for Friendsgiving at the high school, um, I got to go back to the grocery. I am so not ready. So I'm right there with you if you've still got grocery shopping to do. Turkey, dressing, potatoes, gravy, cranberry salad, sweet potato casserole, green beans, a pie buffet, That's on the menu at our house. So on the grocery list would be the bird, extra legs, because I have more than two people in my house who like a turkey leg. And strangely, turkeys still only come with two legs. So I get some extra legs. Sage, rosemary, thyme. I like to use the fresh herbs and stuff them under the skin in the bird with some butter. So I need some butter. The stuffing mix. We have already discussed my mom's um, delicious sausage stuffing recipe. Uh, And so, yeah, I'll be making that. Mushrooms, onions, celery, eggs, sage, sausage, stock. Yep, got to have all that. Cranberries, orange juice, walnuts, and gelatin to make the cranberry salad. Sweet potatoes, pecans, brown sugar, and marshmallows to make the sweet potato casserole. Green beans. In our family, it's just green beans. They're they're fresh and they're uh, steamed, so no extra ingredients there. And then whatever Jim still needs for the pies. And then, of course, like whipping cream because there's going to need to be whipped cream. And other people like their pie with with a scoop of ice cream, so some vanilla ice cream. Yep. And then I got to get some items for the charcuterie board because, you know, people like to eat other than just the Thanksgiving meal. So got to have some things for that. Bread for the sandwiches the next day, lettuce, mayo, tomato, you know, all the goods. All right, what is that all going to cost me? We're going to talk with Nick Pitts next. One of the things we are going to discuss is how much a typical Thanksgiving Day feast is going to cost this year. And is that up or down from from last year? And even if it is down from last year, does it still feel like it's up? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey. 
Hey, our friend Nick Pitts is back, and he likes babies, and he likes Thanksgiving. So he will not mind if I spend one minute uh, gushing in Thanksgiving over the new life of Lilia May, because you heard uh, just a second ago the voice of Carissa Rogers. She is the station manager here at Faith Radio, and she's given birth to baby number three, Lilia May. Welcome to the world, baby girl, and congratulations to mom and dad and two big brothers and, um, you know, all the goodness that God delivers through the newness of life. So, Nick, you didn't mind Yet, that, did you? You another babies. Reason to, another reason to be thankful. Babies are an easy, easy reminder of the many blessings of God. And uh, they are a heritage uh, from the womb. Blessed are those of the Lord. Yes. I mean, really, if you're in a bad mood, just go find somebody that has a baby and just look at it. This would be a great remedy. <laughs> I, we flew We flew yesterday from Texas over here to Alabama uh, to visit my wife's family for the holidays. And my child was perfect on the flight, except for the uh-huh. last five minutes. And she absolutely stared down two individuals <laughs> behind me the entire time. <laughs> and one of them was a Vietnam veteran. And he was wearing that. And uh, he came up to me afterwards and just smiled and said, that thank you, because uh, apparently she was giving him the side eye. And, you know, at that point in that stage in life, it's not inappropriate to stare someone down for an hour. But nevertheless, if I were to do it, he wouldn't have said thank me. He'd say get away from me. But uh, something about a baby has an ability to buoy our spirits. It's so awesome. It's so awesome. All right. Well, I know it's going to be super fun um, at Thanksgiving, wherever, uh, wherever little Dottie is. So that is awesome. Let's talk about the typical uh, Thanksgiving Day feast. I am pretty sure mine is going to cost more than what is judged here to be the average per plate cost. But um, it says here a dinner of 10 is going to cost on average $61.17, according to the American Farm Bureau Federation. That is down from last year, but it's still 25% higher than it was in 2019. So, I mean, that makes us feel one way. Um, I loved how you framed this as the thieves of Thanksgiving. So what are some of the thieves of thankfulness? What's robbing us of our joy? Yeah, there's a great research out of UC Berkeley that uh, kind of identified those things called thieves of gratitude, thieves of kind of our joy, and that can rob us of happiness. And they're everything from narcissism to materialism to envy. It's essentially just those characteristics and qualities that concentrate on the things that we don't have instead of the things that we do have. Montesquieu has a line that our happiness isn't contingent upon the stuff that we have because we're always consumed about who has more stuff. Um, the, uh, inability, and it's just, it becomes more poignant too. When you just think about what Paul said to the church at Philippi, to the, the, the blessed learnedness that comes with contentment, right. Of knowing that he had much, knowing that he had little, but through it all, he had Christ. Therefore he had contentment in Philippians three. And this, this Thanksgiving, there's just so many opportunities obviously for things to come and steal our joy, steal a reason to be thankful, whether it's just the consumption of self, which is narcissism, whether it's this materialism that's constantly looking online or looking around the table at what you don't have and what others do have and a deep desire for their stuff. There's a lot of opportunities and threats to that Thanksgiving. 
but there's also an opportunity for us just to just to think through just the many reasons we have to be thankful. I, I, I research has been clear, I, and I can just personally testify it has radically changed my life. To make it a, a one of the things that starts my day is just a gratitude journal of specifically putting pen to paper, not writing on a text, not just thinking about it as you're on your way to a car, on your way to work but putting pen to paper, writing down, feeling the physical exertion with my hand, rubbing against the paper, and thinking through three to five reasons to be thankful this morning. And it, it really does. There is, there is something that changes that has, that has given me another reason not to think about what I don't have, but rather to be grateful to God for what he has entrusted to me. Uh, I got up. My left heel does not hurt, and my coffee is delicious. Hey, that's a good, that's a, that's that's and great. And I'm talking to Nick. I get to talk uh, to Nick. Well, 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 we were looking for three <laughs> you things. Were well, we you there. were wondering if I was going to get there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so good. Hey, Nick, um, we can um, we can probably dispense with uh, a conversation about what in the world is going on in Georgia. Not yeah. in relationship to Rosalind Carter, but can we talk about what's going on in Georgia in relationship to churches um, leaving the um, the United Methodist Church? And then when we come back from a break, we'll talk about um, Rosalind Carter. Oh, yeah. We, uh, yeah, okay. what's happening in Georgia, t- 260 plus congregations have decided to split from the, the great assemb- the Methodist Assembly here in the U.S. And this kind of has been dated. I mean, you could date this back to conversations that have been happening since 2017 and it's over the lgbtq and it, it's just it's just sad it it really is sad i, I um you just have an individual i i kind of am i thinking it's been and churches are similar to grocery stores you have individuals that are coming there looking for bread but there are some churches that are content with pointing them towards the toilet paper aisle um that there is great joy to be found in following after Jesus and uh, who he says is that he has come to give us life to the fullest and the completion of our joy. And first John two, he says that his, his commands aren't burdensome to us, but are for our delight. It's this idea that we're not to lower the bar for our own whims, but we're to pursue after the bar. And even when we fail, we know that our God is going to graciously ask us to try again and cheer us on as we do so. And I and I'm just so saddened that there are churches that are lowering the bar and turning a blind eye to those things in life that are keeping you from living the fullness of life that Christ, Christ died to give you. Yeah, and for those of you um, who are part of United Methodist congregations, you're already well aware of this. For others, our brothers and sisters in Christ in the United Methodist Church are in the midst of congregational voting, congregations at the local level actually taking votes um, to determine whether or not they will remain in the United Methodist Church or they will affiliate with a um, a, a different expression of um, United Methodist that has emerged now in the United States of America in much the same way. So it's going to it's called the Global Methodist Church. Some 20 percent of United Methodist congregations have already voted to um, to congregate alongside other United Methodists in what is now the Global Methodist Church. It launched in May of 2022, um, and 
And so we see now these hundreds of churches in Georgia joining the thousands across the country that have already made this move. And so it's probably happening near where you are. It may be happening in the context of your local congregation. And so I wanted you to be aware of it because much um, in much the same way as the um, ELCA uh, has now given birth to the NALC or the PCUSA has given birth to the PCA, the EPC and ECO. Um, you know, there are there are now Methodists who are no longer a part of what we call the United Methodist Church, but are now part of um, this global fellowship of Methodists who want to return to um, a confessional belief system and an understanding of Scripture that uh, that understands people to have been made in the image of God on purpose and distinctly as male and female and not as potentially um, the other gender at some point in their life, um, and certainly not in sexual relationships outside of the context of the marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. Uh, all of those things did not require that kind of definition uh, even 20 years ago. And so the conversations have become complex, and people's relationship with their local churches is affected by it. We're going to continue our conversation with Nick Pitts here in just a moment. We're going to talk about um, uh, former First Lady Rosalind Carter. She is now with the Lord. We're going to talk about um, her her life and legacy. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. Hey, continuing our conversation with our friend Nick Pitts. Nick, let's talk about Rosalind Carter. Um, I mean, I think she's got quite a legacy as a as a as a woman of faith. Let's talk a little bit about her as first lady. Oh yeah, she was known as the White House press corps gave her the name of Steel Magnolia, and so it was a combination of just the fierce determination and that uh, force to be reckoned with that she was in the Carter White House to speak up for her husband, as well as the issues that she was uh, a strong advocate for. But it's also the Magnolia component being just that Southern poise and grace that is so that is just so prevalent here in the South and places like uh, everywhere from Plains, Georgia, to Auburn, Alabama, to over here in Birmingham, just that's the Southern poise and grace that um, she just demonstrated time and again she was she was a rock star she was uh, a part of the same church and they taught sun, a very popular Sunday school class she served as a deacon at their church and she was there she preferred to be more behind the scenes than in front of the scenes and was just this just incredible woman um I I loved some of the facts that you that you shared about this um I did not know this story uh, that President Carter first knew her. I mean, you know, he was a little, little kid at the time as the newest baby on the street. Mrs. Carter. um, So, yeah, Rosalind had been delivered by Jimmy Carter's mom, a nurse. So that's kind of cool. Like, right. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. Jimmy, I think, I think little Jimmy was probably around two or three, if I remember correctly. And she was the newest, uh, she was the newest baby on the street. And so they, uh, they brought little Jimmy over to stare down at her. And that was the, the start of a romance. And it really was, it was just a, it was an incredible partnership that they had. Probably one of my favorite stories that came from it is, is this idea that, that uh, Jimmy Carter was always known as he was just a campaigner, whether it was mm-hmm. running for he governor of Georgia. People. I mean, Whether just love right being with people. Oh, yeah. And even when during his presidency, he no one thought he had a chance. And so he just relocated to Iowa for years so that he could so that he could campaign and be with people. Well, there's this story that he was uh, he was just always listening, always listening to people. And him and Rosalind would be side by side. And when he was running for governor of Georgia, there came a point that uh, Rosalind just became so overwhelmed with all the stories of families that were struggling to the extent that she knew that she had to do something for these families that were struggling with um, that just had family difficulties. And she eventually decided that she was going to come unannounced to the campaign stop the next day and uh, uh, put the question to her husband, what he was going to do, what his administration was going to do with mental health uh, for mental health in the country. And then he responded to her with force. Uh, I plan to have the best mental health. Uh, uh, we, we'd have the best mental health in the state of Georgia in the country and you will run it. And it's just this beautiful partnership that they had. She was just a fierce advocate and really did embody that idea of wanting to be demonstrate Southern gentility, being that magnolia, but also having that steel reserve uh, in order to to speak up for those that, that can't be spoken for. Yeah, tremendous advocate on the mental health front. Um, and they talked a lot about marriage. They mm-hmm. they not only demonstrated in their marriage what you know what a healthy marriage looks like, what a God honoring marriage looks like, but they they actually talked about it. Like they were public about um, about their marriage and their stories. You have um, um, you have a story about when President Carter was awarded the Nobel Prize and how he answered a question. Would you share that with? with oh yeah. Yeah, so he's being interviewed by Katie Couric. I believe it was um, uh, it was in the early 2000s. He was being awarded the Nobel Prize, and and Katie asked him, what, "What this has to be one of the most exciting moments of your life, right?" And um, and he responds, "Well, I I, I believe that was Mary. Uh, the most exciting part of my life was marrying Rosalind um, uh, years ago, and it was just a, a very a very just." stark reminder of how committed he was but how over the moon he was for his wife but i will say it was funny because i was dick i read an interview of him a few years ago and it talked about probably one of the most trying times of their marriages which you will be able to relate to carmen um is that they went and they wrote a book together <laughs> she said when they wrote a book it puts a, a tremendous amount of stress on you <laughs> and that was the thing that probably was one of the more trying moments <laughs> and so it was just a, a very lighthearted but also keen reminder that for every book you see on the shelf you know, there's a lot of stress that goes into it and can even stress even the best of marriages including the carters um we're going to talk a little bit later in the next hour just about you know people are complex no person is um I mean, every person is very very complicated rosalind carter is no no exception to that mm-hmm. i think one of the things that you know, has always been hard for me to figure out and reconcile is although privately pro-life, publicly pro-choice. And and that's mm-hmm. just always been this complexity about the Carters that I have I have found a difficulty in in reconciling. My guess is that uh, that is um, 
influenced heavily by their exposure to people in poverty across the state of Georgia um, Mm -hmm. who did not see a way forward in terms of raising additional children. Yeah, it was a, it was, what is the, it's the phrasing that we are in a very different position. Now there are different forces and different circumstances that lead us to the conclusions that we draw today. And that during the seventies and eighties, even as they continue to today, there's that idea of being pro-choice is just very different. Um, And I, obviously I, I disagree with their position, but I think it just is the realization that even though you can disagree with their position, you don't have to demonize the other person and you can try your best not to own them, but to try to persuade them to your side. And even though we can disagree with them, we can still honor them by pointing out those components of their life that we find to be very admirable and worthy of emulation. And with the Carters, yes, there are just like everybody else, just like my mother, (laughs) there are, there are things that we can disagree with them on and wish that they, they would change their mind. But there are all, also those components and characteristics that are worth considering and worth seeing how we might be able to emulate them as they did so. Mm. Thank you um, so much. Happy Thanksgiving. May may there be lots of mashed potatoes and gravy all over your baby's face. Oh, and may there be plenty Mm -hmm. of sweet potato casserole. We cannot forget about (laughs) sweet potato casserole. It's so good, isn't it? It's just so good. All right. Hey, Nick, as always, thank you so much, brother. So good to be with you, Carmen. Likewise, likewise. All right, there are um, there are some things we can't fix. Those of you who are texting in that are a part of United Methodist Congregations um, or now Methodist Congregations, Lori in Lampasas, Texas, um, says um, my Methodist Church voted several months ago to join. Um, you know, on the question of whether or not to join the the global Methodist um, denomination, and we did. But we lost members, um, a few members, due to the decision. Yeah, I think that is not unusual. Lori, first of all, thanks for sharing your story. Uh, Division is not unusual when a vote is taken of any kind among any group of people. I am desperately sorry for that. Um, There is, I, I think, it's difficult to avoid because we think of our churches as voluntary associations, as if we are choosing which one to attend and which one to remain as a part of. And um, I hope that you can continue in personal fellowship in the community with those fellow believers who have gone to worship elsewhere, um, because ultimately the the church is not divided. Ultimately, um, the church is the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And so um, if Find fellowship, restore fellowship um, with those with whom fellowship is broken, even as you disagree on um, church governance conversations um, and even which denomination your particular congregation might be affiliated with. Others of you checking in from other places saying, hey, our, you know, the powers that be um, have told us it's too late to vote. We waited too long. Yeah, I personally don't know all of the timelines and all of the places related to what is what is happening in disaffiliations and um, and regatherings um, in the United Methodist Church or among Methodists in the United States. And so thank you for weighing in on all of that. There are things I just think we should acknowledge at some point that we can't fix. Um, and so in the midst of whatever it is that we can't fix, let's say the Israel-Hamas war, like we can't fix that. Um, and there's hubris in imagining that we can fix our neighbor's problems. So just consider what you can do when you see brokenness 
around you, when you see brokenness in the house next door, when you see brokenness in the community of which you are a part, when you see brokenness in the fellowship, when you see brokenness in the world, what can we do? We can pray. We can offer um, our support, our counsel, our resources. We can remain steadfast in friendship and fellowship. We can help in ways that we are asked when we are asked as we can. And we can we can continue thriving. We can continue advancing the gospel um, in the midst of um, in the midst of the days in which we live. So, fresh off the plane from Israel, Luke Moon joins us next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Our friend Nick, or our friend Luke Moon is back. We just talked to our friend Nick Pitts. Our friend Luke Moon is back um, from the Philos Project. You can find him at philosproject.org. Luke, good morning. Good morning. You are, are you? just you are just back from Israel, and I would I would just like to know you've been there a lot of times. How was this experience different? Oh, it was, this one was so different. Um, I was there just actually four days, which seems insane. It was, um, but it was, it felt like two weeks and it, every meeting we took was tense, difficult. Uh, there's a lot of intensity. Um, you know, the, one of the things that people kept saying over and over was there's the trust is broken. Um, I've also like, uh, you know, I had to run to a bomb shelters four times. Um, I was walking across major square and, uh, there was a couple of guys walking towards us, lots of shouting. And when the when the guys walked past us, I turned to the to the guy next to me. I said, "I'm surprised we didn't get shift because it felt like that. I felt it was like the first time I'd ever felt like I might die in the, in, in Israel. Um, mm. It was it was weird. It was I had never been to Bethlehem like that. There were no tourists. There was no there was nobody." Uh, we walked through Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, and I I have a video of me walking from the, the the courtyard through the doors and straight into where the tomb is. And if anybody mm. has been there, no, you there's don't always do that. You're, no, you're like it's, it's mom. It's like um, little steps at a time. Yeah, it's there's mm. and and if you know in a given November, in a normal November. Uh, this is when a lot of the church groups go um, to do the, you know, to do the tour, you know, the Bible land tour. That's this season is the Bible land tour season. And it would have been just a, a mob house. And it was no one was there. It was, mm-hmm. you know, walk the streets of Jerusalem alone. It was it was weird. Luke, um, for people that, you know, don't know the geography as well as you do, when you refer to Manger Square and then you refer to Bethlehem, you are talking about um, the West Bank. So, yes. so yes. this is, so I think that could you help people understand um, when you're in, when you're in parts of Israel, um, you are, it feels different and there's a different constituency and a different governance than when you are in, let's say Gaza or as you were in the West bank. Can you just help people understand that? Yeah. Um, There's really these areas called Palestinian territories and uh, Bethlehem is one of those. It's a, it's a majority Arab 
uh, town used to be a majority Christian. Now it's majority Muslim. Um, and it, you know, in the normal, in normal times, I always, you know, always, but I often will rent a car and it's like, you know, it's like driving around any city, you know, you put in your Google maps and it will take you where you need to go. And it's just like driving in, you know, Nebraska or something. I don't know about that, but it's driving. It's like very normal. Uh, and, and this time I couldn't drive into Bethlehem. Uh, all the entrances, all the roads that led into Bethlehem had been uh, basically a dump truck had dumped a pile of rubble in, in all the roads that enter in. And so to get in, I actually had to park the rental car, walk across this berm of rock and then get in a taxi and then have them take me where I needed to go. And it was, so there was, you know, in normal circumstances, probably half the cars in Bethlehem have Israeli license plates as opposed to Palestinian license plates. Um, yeah, it's, 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 uh, and all the, you know, there's a main entrance that the buses would go through that is, that's closed. Um, and to get out, I had, the, you know, we had to get dropped off. Uh, walk past uh, four IDF soldiers with guns pointing at us. Um, you know, they didn't actually ask why we were walking back out of, of Bethlehem, but, you know, we just did. We just walked past them. Um, yeah. And then we went down to, you know, we went down to uh, Kfar Aza, which is on the border with, with Gaza, uh, one of the towns that had lost a lot of people. Uh, we were in the part of the kibbutz that was called the youth village. Basically, when the kids turn 18, they kind of get to live, you know, alone. Um, and that the row of houses that was made up the youth village um, was the closest to the to Gaza. And it was the first that was attacked. Um, and it was, you know, I, I there's a house, uh, you know, that was. You could see where the RPG hit the door uh, and then they threw in a grenade and then they set it on fire. Uh, and the guy who lived there, his name was uh, Nitsan and he is, he's gone. We're talking with Luke Moon. Um, he works with an organization called the Philos Project, philosproject.org. Um, Luke, when you, when you describe your conversations and your meetings and this description that, you know, the trust is gone, it's not just that the trust is broken, that the trust is gone. Um, Who are you talking about? Like, right. And, and, and maybe describe here what your work is, because I think that it's going to help people understand you and why you're there so much and why what is happening now um, is so painful. Well, yeah, I mean, our, I mean, I'll start, you know, our work is to promote positive Christian engagement in the Near East, to try and identify, you know, philos means friend in Greek. So we're identifying, hey, there's friends and let's, let's foster friendship between peoples. You know, let's promote pluralistic uh, region focused on rule of law and people living together uh, and flourishing like that. Um you know, back in 2021, I went after the last major rocket attack. I went, I was there right after that one too. And I remember walking around in 
in a, a town near the airport, and somebody said to me that the goal of, of Hamas at the time was to show that Jews and Arabs cannot live together and uh, to break the status quo, to break the idea that Jews and Arabs can live together. Um, they, they failed in 2021. They succeeded uh, in 2023. It is, is gone. There is no, like, there is no interest in letting Palestinian workers come and work. And the problem is, it's like, you know, it's like um, if all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's every, um, you know, every person who works at the restaurants and the hotels, all the, all the people doing dishes, all the construction workers, um, a good number of taxi drivers, a good number of, you know, just people who, who provide the labor for the nation. Most of those are Palestinians. Most of them. There's like a handful. I mean, like not more than a handful, but it's like maybe 10,000, 20,000, maybe, maybe 50,000, you know, like Filipino and Thai workers and, you know, maybe some Chinese and Nepali and whatever. But the majority of the labor force in Israel is from West Bank. And that's the trust that's broken. There's not like, uh, you know, how do they, how do you, how do you get rid of like a third of your labor force and then, and, and you know, function normally, but at mm -hmm. the same time, you have no trust of the people mm -hmm. who you had trust before, you know, are you going to trust the guy who serves you coffee after, after all that you have seen? Mm -hmm. And it's the same, and the people self-identify in the same way by the same, you know, it's, if, if, you know, it's hard to differentiate between the Palestinians who came across on October 7th and the Palestinians who are coming to work at the, you know, mm -hmm. at the hotel, if they're both named Mohammed. Yeah. Or driving they, they you, or driving you around in a taxi, like right. That's a exactly. lot of trust to place in a person when you don't, when you're in a foreign country, or even yeah. when it's you know you're in, you're jumping in a taxi with your kid to to, to ride across town. Yeah, um, let's take a very brief break, Luke, and um, and when we come back, I think part of the conversation that we would like to hear you um, reflect on. There's a lot of we know how to fix this. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, Biden says the Palestinian Authority should ultimately govern Gaza and the West Bank. There's a lawmakers pressing Biden, you know, for not only the the quote unquote violence to end like right, they're, ta they're talking mm -hmm. about war, um, you know, but for us to tell another country how they ought to be doing what they're doing. Um, and I would just from, you know, you're you've been there a lot. You know them well. I would like for you to reflect on all of that when we come back. We're talking with Luke Moon. You can find him and lots of resources at philosproject.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up, they come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and 
want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Continuing our conversation with our friend Luke Moon from the Philos Project. Um, Luke, you know, we we all hear the headlines. We all hear the reports. Um, There are a lot of people suggesting they know how to, quote, you know, fix what is broken in the Middle East. Um, You know, all kinds of folks um, offering their opinions, both solicited and unsolicited. Um, Can you just reflect on that? It feels like hubris to me to tell another country how they ought to be, you know, doing what they're doing. Um, But maybe maybe you see it differently. Well, we all love to tell. I mean, everybody loves to tell Israel what it should do. I mean, we're we're, there's a long history of that. Um, And. It's not, there are no good options, Carmen, no good options. Like literally, this is, I would say the the day after plan is the most, the most difficult nut to crack that I can possibly imagine just about anywhere in the world. I mean, really, it really, really is because of all the expectations on Israel uh, from the outside, um, there's, I mean, obviously Hamas has governed that that land since 20, 2006. So you have, you know, they've indoctrinated most of the kids, uh, no, not even the kids, most of the adults have grown up indoctrinated by Hamas to hate Israel. So there's that. Uh, Abbas, who runs the Palestinian Authority, which is the group that the administ- U.S. administration wants to run this, the guy's going to die in like two years. He's really old and is regularly taken to the hospital with medical complications. There is like the guys coming up next are not, they don't have the same uh, street cred. So it's, you know, and, and if they go in, they look like the stooges of, of Israel, right? Like, Oh, you, you know, Israel let us, Israel puts them in. So they're like the, they get totally seen as the puppet of Israel, which is not what the Palestinians want to mm. feel. Um, I, in talking with people on the ground, there's there's no desire to give any of it back. My, you know, it will be basically. I, you know, I, I asked some. Is it, you know, has this become a gravel quarry basically because of all the buildings have been turned to rubble? And they eventually will just be like turned into gravel and it'll be piles of gravel. And they're like, yeah, yeah. Maybe eventually we'll have, you know, there'll be Jewish hotels on the beach, but there, there's not this like uh, on the, on the street side of it, there's not this like push to, Oh, let's, let's figure out how we help the Palestinians again. Like that mood is not there at all. Like that's, and, and anybody who's, and the leadership on, like I said, the Palestinian Authority is not great. There's no way 
there's going to be an international force that goes in and like governs um, the, you know, the U S doesn't have no, no Western nation has the political capital to pull that off. And they tried that in Southern Lebanon. The idea of Southern Lebanon was that, you know, the UN was going to have a force that would keep people from particularly Hezbollah, the other terrorist organizations bombing Israel currently, uh, they, they would be uh, not allowed to move south of a river uh, and they would not be allowed to have weapons, neither of which has, has the UN been able to stop, right? So the UN's not useful. So you have this like the Palestinian Authority will look like puppets and the leadership of that authority doesn't is barely holding on to the West Bank. Uh, there's Israel just kind of takes it because they want it in battle. That's a, that to me is probably the most realistic option of what will happen. Um, and the whole world will scream at them, but they'll be like, well, you screamed when we, you screamed lies the whole time. You knew, you knew Hamas was using the hospital and yet you said nothing. The UN has no credibility. And, and so I just don't know, like I said, there's no good options. And my sense is the the option is that Israel just takes it. Israel takes it, and they're going to build houses. Wow, um, that's know. a sober, no, no. <laughs> it's a sober assessment, and I thank you for being honest. I think it's very, very difficult to um, to get brutally honest answers. And you have um, you have given us your honest assessment from having just been there and having talked with real people. Uh, and so, thank you, um, thank you for that. Um, I want to pray for you and for others with whom you are engaged in conversation, for those you know on the ground. Um, and so um, maybe just a quick list of first names so that I can jot them down and be mindful of them. Who are Who's top of mind when I say, let's pray for our friends in Israel? Uh, Ronan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um... I would Ronan comes to mind. Yoav comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Lauren comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Phaedra comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Phaedra. Yeah, yeah you know Phaedra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Naveen comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Ari. Shadi. Shadi. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ari. All right. Let's do this, Luke. Yeah. Okay. Father, we come before you. We come before you as brothers and sisters in Christ. We come before you bearing up precious people in a precious place. Father, we don't know what to do, and it would be utterly ridiculous for us to suggest to you a solution. So we bear up the people. We lift them up to you in our prayers. We lift them up to you with our hearts. We lift them up to you with the tears that fall from our eyes and the hope that we hold Father, in the midst of all of it, protect precious people, Ronan and Yuav and Lauren and Phaedra and Naveen and Shadi and Ari, so many others, Father. I think of um, the sons and daughters of our friends who are um, in northern Israel right now, protecting that particular front. And I thank you for their lives, and I thank you for their willingness to serve, and I thank you for the sacrifice they stand willing to make. Father, for 
moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles who have um, sons and daughters and granddaughters and grandsons and nieces and nephews standing right now in dangerous places, willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. We pray for them, Father. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We would um, ask nothing more and nothing less. And as Christians, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke, Amen. Um, thank you, brother. Pass along our, um, our concern and let us continue to let us know how we can help. Of course. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So um, let's take a deep breath. I want you to make your own list of, um, of people and places about which you're concerned. God has the whole world in his hands. God has the whole world in his hands. And God is equally concerned about every person in every place in every circumstance as he is concerned about you and yours and the circumstances in which you find yourself today. So God sees you. God knows you. God loves you. I encourage you to consider the love of God this morning um, as we continue our conversation together. Hour two is up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.